I just remember we sent it over to our, our production guys and they were like, are you insane? No, we're not doing this. We can't. It's already <laughs> expensive enough with the Wild West stuff. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. This is a rewatch podcast, which means that we spoil everything early, often, all the time. If you haven't seen the entire series from beginning to end, please do yourself a favor and do that and then come back and join us. We don't want to ruin the experience for you. This is Beep. And of course, I will be joined as always by the lovely Cece. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain. And you can find her on Twitter at A Capital Chick. We have a special episode today because we were speaking with the writer of 404 Legacy, Mr. Christopher Monfett. So I won't keep you from that. Please enjoy the interview. Christopher Monfett, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always fun to do these. Yeah, we, we love having writers on um, and get such like awesome backstories from you. So there's there's there are things that we can only dig so far into because we're not on the inside. So we appreciate you coming and telling us like backstories and things like that. Of course. Um, before we get into this episode, we did hear over the past couple of weeks that you have jumped on to Star Trek Picard for season two. So yes. what can you tell us about that right now? Uh, painfully little. I'm sorry. Um, but it was it's great to be back working with with Terry again. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of a of a of a monkey's reunion. Um, and it's it's I, I think really an honor and a privilege to be able to work on a brand like Trek that kind of has such meaning for, for people. Um, and certainly for my, myself growing up. So, uh, it's been really fun We're I mean, we're in our kind of third, second or third week going into our third week in the room, uh, you know, talking about the, the next season and, um, what that's going to be. Uh, I'm sorry, I really can't say too much about it, but it's also been great for me. I'm coming in, coming into it at the start of the at this start of the second season is it's great because I get to watch the first season as a fan and kind of experiencing it, it fresh with folks who are, are watching it on uh, on all access now. So it's it's been great, um, and I'm I'm super excited for where it's going. So. Well, that's awesome, and you may not have known it, and maybe it's not news to everybody else, but I didn't know you guys were in the room yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just we're together and we're talking. We're just trying to figure out what it's going to be and where it's going to go. And, uh, you know, working with with Terry again is 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 terrific. And, you know, I think it's um, it's 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 just a privilege to be able to play in that sandbox with these people. Um, so, you know, what we end up making of it and uh, and what folks think about it. I'm just super I'm super excited and super hopeful. So that's awesome. Have you met? Have you ever met Sir Patrick? Uh, I have not yet met him. Uh, I look for. I you, look like for, not wait for that because he is legendary. Um, you know, it's a mixed experience, right? It's like you're really excited to meet this person who holds such an iconic place in in not only like your own personal history, but in geek culture in general. But the downside of that is how big of a of an asshole am I going to look like? You know, in front of him, <laughs> st stammering over all of my words and geeking out and. 
And then he's going to turn Terry and go, and you want this man to write for me? Like, um, he, he hasn't even mastered the language yet. So Aww, just uh, play a Jones model right, right, right. and he'll feel secure. He's right. a good hand. <laughs> um, I love that. I love because, you know, that's how we feel when we talk to folks like behind this show. So it's just fun. Like we're all in it together as geeks, man. Of course. Um, <laughs> so, but so fun. I mean, Star Trek is just, I watched it with my grandparents. Now I'm watching it with my kids. You know, it's one, maybe even, even though I've always been more, I'd say of a Star Wars fan. Right. I feel like Star Trek, just because it goes back so much further. I mean, it crosses four generations of my family. Right. You know, as opposed to like three. So, yeah. Well, we were all really, really, I mean, 12 Monkeys fans rejoice to see sort of the <laughs> Avengers getting back together. So, super exciting. Yeah. Um, but today we're talking about 12 Monkeys. On <laughs> a, actually, a really special day for folks listening. We are recording on Groundhog Day 2020. So sort of we were all woke up thinking about lullaby, of course, right. um, and hoping that 2020 doesn't sort of go the way of the way that episode. This is the 104th <laughs> time we've recorded this podcast. <laughs> right. We're forced to relive it every day. Right. Birds, guns. Help, help us. Help us, We're please. trying to do something while also doing nothing, but it's just like <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> doing something while like, doing something while doing nothing is the perfect like a description of Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, um, so today we're talking about 404 Legacy, obviously written by you, um, directed by Joe Menendez. Yes. Who I, he also directed Brothers, yes. right? Um, and man, what an unbelievably talented director. This is He's a great. gorgeous episode of TV. Yeah, I, I I really lucked out uh, on this show in, in the sense that the that my episodes were generally directed by really extraordinary directors, uh, Joe Menendez, Steve Adelson, David Grossman, um, and Joe is just such a wonderful human being. He's so nice and so talented, and his he's so he has a level of enthusiasm not just for you know kind of what he does, but for the show itself. You know, he came in as a fan of the show um, and it wasn't just sort of like some director who walked through the door and, you know, yeah, okay, I'll do a couple and then leave. Um, he, he genuinely loved the show and the characters. And so, uh, you know, and he's just such a great, you know, he's such a great shooter and there's some really terrific shots in this episode, especially. So it was, it was awesome working with him. Yeah. I mean, we've gushed about production values on this show a ton and I'm a huge period piece fan but this episode I remember my husband and I sitting on the couch and when it shifts to that sort of sweeping and I remember listening to Talking Monkeys you guys shot it with drones yes, sort of yeah. sweeping. with that and the music it, it, you're just like it, it, it's unbelievable like yeah. the scale of it um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of pre- you know, the production behind this episode, because it really, it just feels like such a bigger canvas than anything you all had ever done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of that was just sort of shot in or in and around, you know, Toronto in much the same way that we we've shot a lot of our other episodes, um, you know, and supplemented with CG and all of that stuff. But um, this doing a, a kind of a Western episode of anything, um, is, as I learned, a gargantuan challenge. I mean, we, 
you know, in our show have destroyed time traveling cities and gone back to medieval Europe and, you know, all the spectacle of everything we've ever done. And this was somehow like the one episode they came to us and was like, guys, you're over budget. Stop. Um, but, you know, and we're in the writer's room and all we're like, well, it's just a couple of horses. Like, what? Where, where's the money? Um, but no, I mean, it was it, it, it becomes a challenge because everything, you know, everything you're doing is exterior and 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 it's to you, you want to do the most and best you can to capture the grandeur of that time and um, and really milk, uh, you know, every day's worth of shooting for what it's worth. So um, it. It, it was a challenge um, and it was grueling at times, you know, being outdoors for as much of the episode as we were. But I think Joe certainly shot the hell out of it. And, you know, it's got, I think, some of the best shots of the series in it. Um, and also, I think we have to give a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of props to um, Steve Barton, our composer, because I think his score for this episode really gives it some scope um, and, and just even beyond the images on screen evokes the west but also evokes a kind of size and scale to the episode that you know wouldn't otherwise be there so yeah i was noticing with the music i mean because you know uh, when you have the mountains and you have team splinter on horseback and it sounds almost like um like a, a score by barry you know but but also he does this sort of in some of the comedic moments this right. kind of twangy take on yeah. 12 monkeys theme yeah. that kind of makes you it makes it even more comical it just it adds it, depending on the scene it's always adding more um, yes yeah 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 it, he always adds value i mean any any scene that he puts music over um you know him and terry work very closely together to make sure that the show sound it's not just great but sounds appropriate for the scene um and then so it didn't it the that we never felt like we were just putting cookie cutter music over uh, a sequence just to have music there. Um, and I think in this episode, particularly, um, you know, he, he got the instrumentation and the arrangements and, and, and really added a ton of value to every scene. So when you, if you sort of break down, um, I know that this aired is sort of in different chunks originally, but right. when you all were putting the season, it seems like you've got sort of the first half of the season is um, dealing with sort of the emotional and plot repercussions of season three. And right. then this chunk of it is like the adventure. Like it feels like, like the adventure hour. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. From going from, and so when you all, and we get to kind of exhale a little bit, like this episode is very funny. I think it's one of the funniest <laughs> 12 monkeys episodes. Like, um, and so when you all were breaking down sort of, how this season was going to look. Was it sort of important to you all to, to give the audience that time to exhale and have fun? And then when you're sitting around at a table and you can travel to any time period you want, how did you all, how did you all pick? And were there any that sort of was like, was the last one that got cut off the list that you all would have loved to have done? Yeah. I mean, the, there, it, it, it was exactly that, which was, you know, we knew coming into four that we had to, um, sort of put the bow on the remainder of, of season three and the consequences of what happened at the end of that season and sort of reset for where we knew we were going. But we also knew we were knew that where we were going was going to be very kind of heavy uh, emotionally and then also narratively. So we, we wanted this sort of little, you know, triptych or quintet of episodes right there in the middle of the season that would let the audience just go on an adventure and do a little 
you know, kind of just Indiana Jones time hopping mystery. Um, and before we then, you know, went and, and punched you in the heart in the last couple. So uh, it was totally intentional, but it was also a little selfish, I think, on our part, because, you know, we knew we were coming to the end. We were like kids outside playing with their toys when the mother is like, you got 10 more minutes. Uh, so we were like, okay, quick, open the toy box. What do we want to play with? You know, like, um, and it, so it became like, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to do a Wild West episode? Do we want to do a, a cool medieval episode? Let's all throw it in the grab bag. Um, you know, do we, do we need to do the obligatory World War II episode? And then if we do that, how do we turn it on its head? Um, so it was kind of our last ditch effort as, as writers to say, what haven't we done yet? What do we still want to do um, while this show is still fun? Uh, and then before we go into the heartbreak of, of, you know, what eventually becomes, you know, one minute more and the finale and all that. So, yeah. Were there any Westerns um, that you grew up loving that you kind of had in mind as you were writing this or sort of any little homages that maybe the audience might not have picked up on while watching? My father was a huge fan of Westerns. So, I mean, I grew up with Westerns on in my house all the time. And I, what was kind of ironic was I was not a huge fan of Westerns. It was a genre that I just never really kind of embraced. And so when this episode kind of came to me, um, it was it was a fun and interesting opportunity to go back and revisit um, a genre that I had kind of passed me by, um, you know, as you, you went and you watched, you know, some of the old, you know, Clint Eastwood classics and, and John Wayne classics and um, just to get a feel for the piece. But there wasn't really any specific homages to specific movies. It was more about just capturing the kind of tone and the aesthetic uh, of it, and also because it was a lot about capturing how the characters going into that world, <laughs> armed with you know west the westerns and, and and the way that they imagine that world in their heads from having watched westerns, and then throwing them into that, and then showing the difference between the two was also something that we wanted to tackle. So <laughs> right, like like Cole trying to be like mad jaw with you, and the woman's like, right, right. what are you talking about? <laughs> you say that about westerns because like as much as as much as i love sort of historical dramas i i'm kind of with you in that westerns maybe would be lower on the list and one of the things this episode made me actually think about is i think as a woman watching westerns there's usually at least historically um not i mean like Deadwood on HBO might be sort of like a more recent example of, of women don't usually have a lot to do in Westerns. Right. And so one of the things that I love about this episode is you all subvert that because it's the women that are primarily the ones shooting people, right? With Cole with the <laughs> right. little ladies moment or Cole doesn't, isn't, doesn't know how to order a drink. So it's Cassie who's the one that's like throwing the money on the bar and knows how to order it. Mm-hmm. And so Kind of like tough. So there's a lot about this episode that sort of takes, uh, you know, puts women sort of the forefront of the action. And, and it's at least as a female viewer, it's really fun to watch that sort of be subverted. Yeah, I mean, that was never I think by that point in the season, it was never that was that was not something that we were intentionally doing. It was just something that 
we had created these amazing characters and 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 it seemed like those characters by the at that point in the season and in their growth would be the ones taking command of the situation throughout and so it was just it was kind of this uh sort of happy confluence of of character and time period that when you got there you're like yeah this is a western for the women and so you know mm-hmm. we really owned that and embraced it and um leaned into it whenever we could on set so. um sort of uh, you've, you're balancing sort of this huge um you've got a lot of mythology payoffs in this episode yeah. you have western um not just sort of the scope but you're folding in you know there's going to be a shootout in a saloon and there's going to be a dynamite <laughs> with the wire being run and all mm-hmm. of these things that we've seen so many times but this is also a really deeply emotional personal episode right um, particularly with the Jones family. Um, and tell me sort of when you all were planning this season out, wanting to bring Elliot Jones and tell this part of the Jones family story, which had only been really hinted at. We've only seen sort of two or three glimpses of Elliot Jones throughout the series so far. So coming into it, what were y'all's goals um, with respect to telling this piece of the Elliot Jones story? Yeah, we knew this was a, we knew this was something we wanted to, tell we we knew this the sort of the story of the six day marriage was something that we owed um from earlier in the series and you know we knew certainly the reveals that we were about to unfold about you know hannah and and cole and you know all of the sort of intermingling family tree of it so it, it felt appropriate to then go back and say what was elliot's place in that and also we knew that we had owed um from I want to say season two, when Jones looks at Titan and says, "This is El- this is Elliot's technology." So, um, you know that these were all sort of things on the board that we we knew we 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 wanted to give to the audience and we wanted to elaborate on further, and it felt like like you know when you're looking at the board and you're like, okay, Old West, uh, and then you know you're the origins of Titan, and then you're like, okay, well let's go into the origins of 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 hannah in a strange way and that relationship between between elliot and and uh uh, elliot and and jones and then seeing that through the prism of of jones looking back on her life and um it all felt like of a piece and so the the balancing act really was creating the episode in such a way that it was um, emotional on on the A side with with Jones and Elliot and Hannah and also fun and breezy but still stakesy and 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 plotty on on the the Wild West side. So it was it was a very kind of tricky episode to pull off in that there were probably as this I think and Tiglaka were probably the two that went through as many script iterations uh, throughout that early, the, the early to mid part of the season um, in just trying to crack the balance and in just trying to, to, to make sure that, that everything didn't, it didn't feel like the scales were weighed too much one way or the other. Really? Yeah. I mean, at net, when you put it that way, um, yeah, it is a lot to balance in one episode, but it doesn't certainly watching it. It doesn't feel you know, you don't. We, I don't feel that labor as a viewer. So, I mean, you all definitely pulled it off. Um, I think the thread. I think the thread that makes it work is Peter, um, because Peter Atterbridge, who plays Elliot, uh, is so 
likable. And I think that in making Peter this sort of incredibly likable, energetic professor who begins the episode in the flashback and then originates in the Western story and then brings that through into the future story, he and his energy kind of helped bridge um, those tones. So uh, I, I, I think his performance, I, I, I think, really gives a lot to the audience and allows the audience to go kind of take this journey because you were with him setting up the early bits of the, you know, playing the monsters in the bar and all that stuff. So he goes from the fun of the Wild West and takes his sort of fun personality into the future. And then you get to descend into the tone and the drama of everything with Joan. So um, he's the key, I think, to, to modulating through the episode for the audience. Yeah, Elliot Jones has quite a day. <laughs> he, <laughs> he finds out. Yeah. I mean, wow. Um, so, you know, we, um, you've written so many great Jones monologues, and this <laughs> episode opens with one, and it's a, it, it ties into the title of the episode, Legacy, but this mm-hmm. is also Jones, who Jones has often sort of ruminated about life and death and morality and who judges us going all the way back to, you know, season two. Um, but, but this is a Jones that is facing death in, you know, four to six weeks. And right. So, um, it obviously takes a much more sort of urgent shape to it. She describes, I thought it was really interesting the way you described legacy and that you've got religion's view of what happens after death um, and you sort of describe it as time eternal, which is really interesting when you think about sort of that, what that means in this show with mm-hmm. the Red Forest. Um, but also sort of the the scientist view, just sort of matter of fact, well, it's the day after you die. Right. But that the one thing, the one thing we know that is left behind after death is our legacy. Right. Um, and what I, what, like so many 12 monkeys episodes, you have these, this crazy story and stakes, but the thread about legacy in this episode is sort of this intertwining of their work mm-hmm. and their family. Right. And when you rewatch this and you add in the layer of coal, <laughs> sort of symbolizes all of that right. in one person. Um, I just, if you could talk to us a little bit about that, because it is really like that is something that many people in real life are balancing in terms of their legacy and what's important work, family. Um, and you, it may not have been intentional, but it is certainly something that is. You know, in this story, the the jo- the doctors Jones, their work and sort of the family, whether it's Hannah or Cole or the found family of Team Splinter, and then on the other side of the episode, we find out there's a whole other family story that's intertwined with work. Mm-hmm. With Olivia and Emma. Yeah, no, and it, it's it's. I'll say this: the interesting thing writing this episode is that you become the sort of third layer of subtext under all of this is the reality of being, of actually just being a writer in general, uh, a working writer who who makes television and gets the privilege and blessings to tell these stories because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of attention. And um, we, you know, you spend anywhere from seven to 10, sometimes 12 hours a day in the writer's room. And then you go to Toronto 
and your family is back in LA and you're filming these things and you ultimately ask yourself why you're doing that. And the answer is because you want to make something that, that will resonate with people and that you can leave behind. So it was an interesting episode to be able to approach from the point of view of a, of a person who, who was not unfamiliar with asking themselves those questions, you know, um, you know, why do you do what you do? And then, and then what are the prices you pay if we're getting the balance wrong? And, um, so, you know, we, we're all able to pour a lot of ourselves into these episodes, um, personally. And so, uh, it, it, it was a real, it was a great episode to be able to, you know, add a little bit of your own life experience, you know, because there, there are, there were writers on staff who were going through things with their family, uh, you know, in the middle of writing episodes about family. And so, you know, our personal experience bleeds into this, um, which is all to say that uh, it, it this episode feels, uh, you know, very, I think, very personal um, and 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 is a testament to the fact that you guys are doing this podcast, right? Because the fact that this show touched you enough to do something means that we left something behind and for all of our efforts that was important to somebody somewhere. And I think that's what Jones is struggling with as well, which is, you know, as I walk toward the grave, like, did I leave something of any value behind? Does any of this have meaning? Did I make anything that will outlast me in a meaningful way? And that turns out not just to be the time machine and all that, but of course it's Hannah. Um, And Hannah struggling with the notion of, you know, after my mom passes, who am I in the world? Uh, and who will eventually find out that she herself will leave something behind. And that's Cole. Um, you know, this, this was just a tremendously, uh, emotional episode, not just for the characters for, for, I think the people who crafted it. So it, it feels very personal, but on the other hand, then you get to whip to Cole firing six shooters into the ceiling and, you know, trying to get Elliot Jones to dance. Um, and so, it's also a very fun and funny episode. And I like to think that most of these are in this season. It's a very emotional season, but there's loads of sort of fun and, and, and just that little candy coating of, of time travel whimsy that, that I think plays well here. So I have no idea if that's a meaningful answer to your question. I'm no, sorry. It abs- yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, we end up, there's there are so many layers to all of this it's just why sometimes i beep we find ourselves on this podcast like relating personally to like olivia with her imposter syndrome right right. you know um jennifer with not feeling confident or like all yeah there's it is why we're you know it's a we're now over a year after the series finale and I mean, we probably logged what? Like, <laughs> we'll, we'll, sometime we'll total up how many hours we've spent talking about this show when we get to the end. Um, but I think that's, that's I think that's good, right? I mean, that's why we do it. I mean, it, it's it's it would be totally fine to just say, you know, let's make a TV show because it'll pay our mortgages and we get to be creative and we don't give a shit about who really cares about it or how it affects people. But you know, when when the opposite is just as fulfilling when you can really care and you can really craft and you can really make something that's important, not just to you, but you really hope to other folks and touches their lives in a meaningful way that they still give a damn a year later. Um, that's worth putting your effort into. That's leaving something behind. And so, you know, I, I, I feel that way. I, having said this, I just I had just watched the finale of The Good Place, um, which I don't want to spoil for anybody, but that show uh you know, over over the course of four seasons, I think has become very meaningful. 
um, and I think has said some like profoundly and deeply important things. And so, you know, in the guise of, of, uh, 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 an expertly executed comedy. And so if you can do that, if you can make something that matters to people and touches their lives and affects their paths in ways that you might never know, um, you know, do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Throw yourself into it. But you know, that could, that sometimes comes at a, at a cost and a price. And I think Jones is really struggling with that. With this episode is, you know, that balance of to make one perfect thing. What do I have to take my attention away from? Um, and when she says to Elliot later in the episode, I just wanted to be great at something that I was good at. Mm. Um, it, it, it's that struggle of a scientist, a good scientist, knowing, just knowing if I poured all of myself to the exclusion of everything else into this thing that I think I could be better at, I could maybe one day be great. But what does that mean for what I'm ignoring or for what what I don't put my attention to? And so... It's that's a big question of the episode. Yeah, it is a it is a real question in real life. Yeah. <laughs> that you know, um, let's let's focus on if it's all right. Let's focus on sort of the Jones family piece first. Yes. Um, all right. So there are. I mean, this saloon scene is <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in the whole. Like the sort of anachronistic songs of I, I, I tried to put, so it's weird science. Mm-hmm. Um, the Munsters, which by right. the way, is headed is a family headed by a Frankenstein. Uh-huh. Um, and then the third <laughs> is Knight Rider. <laughs> uh, yes. That? Yeah, okay. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think it's a toy story reference, right? When, when uh, it's like shoot for the, like, shoot for the sky or what does Cole say when he's Uh, oh I forget the line yes there's no shortage of references in that scene Um, (laughs) which is what's so cool though I mean like this is Jennifer's bread and butter right right. right. so it's like a way to show you know she can almost like at least to Cole like pretend oh I'm still primary just because I mean pop culture is her jam right right referencing all these things like how do you not see this well that was you know that was a challenge for a little bit in the season which is once you've taken Jennifer Power, Jennifer's powers away from her, you know, once she's sort of absent her superpower, um, how do you keep her, uh, you know, how, how do you not then, but how do you not, you don't want to also rob her of um, her agency and make her helpless and all of that. So uh, this was a good episode to say, you know, hey, even though she can't see the future, she can't see all of these magical, mystical things that she used to be able to see. She can see what's right in front of her. Um, you know, she can see the eye watch and the boots and the gun and all of that. So, you know, she's still on her on her worst day, more observant than some of our guys on their best. <laughs> Absolutely. Although I love sort of the all the little hints that like this Jennifer is a little bit off her game. Like the idea that of all of the people who don't have a costume, it's right. Jennifer. Right. <laughs> or you have the like they're walking into the saloon and the doors hit her because no one holds the doors open for her. Right. There's just right. all these little, right. um, you know, Jennifer. If Elliot Jones is having the worst day, Jennifer right. is having the second worst yes, day. Yes, this episode. Yeah. Um, so we have sort of the great. I mean, what I I love that this time the fact that Hannah can recognize Elliot Jones it goes all the way back to season two when Jones handed her that photograph. Yes, and and that's the reason why she knows who he is. Yeah. Um, and you know he's thrust into the future. 
if you're Elliot Jones, you think you have been, I mean, Jones calls him, is it, is the line Oppenheimer with the blindfold? Yeah, Oppenheimer in a blindfold, yeah. Yeah, and so he, it, it, it's a really important point for the audience to learn because back in the last time we saw Elliot Jones in season two, um, when he met with the pallid man to begin the Titan project, we didn't quite know what side he fell on. Right. Um, and so this is a big piece of information for the audience to know. Like he may not have had his eyes wide open. And as Joan says, they played his ego, like <laughs> it's a simple instrument, but he had no idea you know, he's looking at the at the board, having no idea what this all caused. Right. Um, and so this con- the, the convert, the scenes that then flow from that between him and Katarina, where they're talking about both their work, but also sort of in terms of what things people leave behind, sort of the wreckage of their personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. There are some wonderful what I mean, it took two decades to invent time travel, but just six days of marriage to ruin each other. There are some great lines in this scene. So just talk to us a little bit about this sort of Katarina and Elliot story. Um, yeah, I think it's it's it, it to me was always the story of of two people who I think genuinely, as they say, eventually in their own way, loved each other. And 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 love may actually be a function of understanding more than anything. They understand each other. Um, but both of them, by virtue of their programming, you know, just their their individual characteristics, their upbringing, their views on the world, um, that was never going to work. It was never going to be compatible. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't still understand and love and care for each other. And so it was this really tricky uh, episode or rather sequence of scenes to write because you wanted to get through the business of that. You wanted to get through the anger of that and get to the meat of their relationship in, you know, what's ostensibly just maybe like 10 minutes of screen time throughout the episode. So, um, you know, it's, for example, like when, so we made Hannah, the you know, the, the question was, how does Hannah feel about him? Um, is Hannah happy to see her dad? Does she give a shit about her father? Is she angry at her father? And so letting Hannah be the one who's initially angry and, and want to let's interrogate him and beat the shit out of him. And this is just a, a man who matters very little to me early on in the story allows Jones in some ways to go, no, 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 let him look at that board behind me because he's about to realize what he really did. Um, and once he realizes that, nothing we say to him is going to be any crueler than one when he realizes the, the, the weight of what he's designed and what he's made. Um, he's arrogant, but not heartless. Exactly. I mean, he's, he doesn't he's, know what he has caused. Yes. He's, he's, you know, arrogant and absent minded and, and probably is not the, the best at reading a room. Like, you know, like we say at the beginning, he's the showman, you know, Jones was the scientist, but he's the showman. And, um, you know, uh, but at the same time, he's not a horrible person, you know, and and we wanted the audience to know that. So, you know, that that was why we really developed his point of view of, of Titan being that in some ways he was he was he was conned into making this thing because he thought what he was making was going to be used for a different purpose, um, you know, which was, hey, we can take a time traveling city. You know, like he says, you know, uh, you want to care for cancer? Give me 100 years. I'll be back tomorrow. Um, that it, for him, it was a function of I can make a kind of arc 
that can just use time better, that you can use it more efficiently. And um, and then to find out that, that that thing was bastardized and corrupted and used for something that was ultimately far beyond what he would ever intend, um, that's more painful than anything Jones can say or any punch that Hannah can deliver. Um, and so, which I, I think just cleared the cleared the plate for us to then be able to play the 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 Jones family scenes that um, you know, of, of of talking about their past very very easily and cleanly and just get into the meat of that. It also an interesting way um, foreshadows. You know, he Elliot Jones, as you were saying, like maybe he didn't sort of have his eyes wide open and got conned, but he his intent was good, right? Um, it kind of, it foreshadows what Jones is going to learn at the end of the series that the demon is coal, right? <laughs> that time travel that she invented, that this whole thing is what is driving time mad, right? In so many ways, they have created the problems that they're trying to fix, even if their intent was good. Um, because in one way or another, they're both scientists that are messing with the natural order of things. Um, one of the things about there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of tragic characters and relationships in Twelve Monkeys. Um, but what Katarina and Elliot Jones, I think, when you sort of sit with everything that you learn about their relationship and about these two characters, on the one hand, you have you have Katarina who wanted to become a great scientist, didn't feel motherhood wasn't something that she welcomed. Um, we watched her back in season one and Paradox kind of go through the decision to keep, um, to decide to go forward with her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And yet her her daughter's life and losing her daughter becomes the like defining moment of her life, right. which then catapults her into this scientific discovery, right? And on the other hand, but but she never wanted that. And that's what broke up their marriage. And Elliot Jones was so devastated by that, that then he became so focused on his work because he said, that's all that I had left. Right. And then the baby that sort of caused the rift between them is the person that brings them back together to have this conversation. Yeah. Like it's... It's so tragic, but it's also just beautiful, like how full circle and in in a really funny way, they kind of mirror each other of this, the work, you can't separate the work from the personal, right? (laughs) you know, the way it unfolds, yeah. Yeah, they were were always only ever going to be scientists, they were just scientists who loved each other, you know, to the exclusion of, uh, it was never, it was never going to work, but that doesn't mean that their relationship wasn't honest. Um, and that they didn't understand each other and care for each other deeply, and that it was just their competing long games and their competing desires for what they wanted out of their lives um, ultimately created this this inevitable disintegration of the relationship that is then healed by the very thing that caused it to disintegrate. Exactly as you said, I think is is um, I mean when we were in the room and we were trying to figure out the dynamics of that relationship, and we weren't we didn't want to put it all on. Elliot Jones. It would have been very easy to make Elliot a villain. He's just the the evil husband who went away and created Titan, and it's just the answer to a question. But you know, we wanted to make him a, a character, and we wanted to tell you something surprising about not just him but Jones. And in this case, it happened to be that Jones actually didn't want Hannah. 
um, that that Jones struggled with with whether motherhood would or wouldn't be for her, and that um, you know he he and that Elliot you know jumped, dived so deeply into the science because he, he the the only other thing he wanted he thought had been taken away from him. So um, it, it it we really went out of our way because we didn't want the dynamic to be lazy. We didn't want to just create another villain. Um, and, and we wanted to sort of develop that relationship in a meaningful way for not just Hannah and Jones, but Elliot as well. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, in some ways I love how they're, even when they're describing, like when Elliot Jones describes sort of the joy he felt, um, hearing that his, that Katerina was pregnant and it's just sort of wonderful to hear a male character talking about it in that way, but he describes it in terms of. It felt won the Nobel Prize, or I vented the wheel. <laughs> right. like even the personal joy is still yeah. expressed in yes. <laughs> like scientific, scientific terms. Yeah. Right? Um, you you got you know one of there's a lot of things that you catch rewatching this episode um, when they are you know this this watching the machine working has to be a hell of a moment. For instances of this episode of the blue turning the blue light turning to red, right? And the experiment failing. And here he is sort of there's a scene where he's walking around and sort of just admiring and in awe of, <laughs> of the time machine. Right. And you guys have this great you have this moment where she's reminding the audience how many people she tried to use this machine with and it didn't work. <laughs> right. And it only worked with coal. And you're doing that in this same episode where they were trying to figure out what the wins and so but the thing is that now we watch we're like this is cole's like grandmother and grandfather discussing their two legacies all rolled into one right? right because it's like cole and the time machine the thing i love about it is even kind of at the beginning of the conversation i love the way she drops hannah on him Right. Sits there and is like, who is this? She doesn't even address him, but she's like, let me speak to your father. (laughs) (laughs) And also, quickly, what you were saying about turning you know him into a villain it's interesting because you know tv doesn't happen in a vacuum right and the first time i ever saw peter was in a role on orphan black and his character is horrendous right i mean terrible mortifying like not a single redeeming quality in my mind yes and so it was really strange to see him and i'm like i don't know man it's that (laughs) guy like i don't know if i can handle this and so to be able to give that kind of like nuanced you know area of of him being like okay he was totally you know into the work but he actually just wanted this kid and he wanted to be a dad and oddly enough that's (laughs) creepily along the same but in a good way on this one. So it was cool to see them kind of put that, um, or you guys put that um, human spin on him outside of the mad scientist thought process that you would originally assume. Yeah, he's also, I mean, I knew him from Nikita, where he plays a very sort of charming, debonair. You like him, even though he's kind of a bad guy, but he's kind of gray area. And it, 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 he always was in the previous episodes. He, you got this sort of sense, but like, you know, Elliot Jones is kind of like he's kind of like that, like 
boomer parent that used to be a hippie. Do you know what I mean? Like he's wearing bracelets and he's still wearing his like Converse all-star. And when they're trying to figure out where, like how to, how are they going to take down Titan? He's like dynamite, man. We're going to blow it up, man. And you're like, Oh, I had friends, dads that were like that. Like they probably smoked a lot of pot in the the sixties and seventies. And he, he has that kind of, you know, he's, he is not Jones. He's not uptight. Like, you know, he's like the, I don't know, he feels kind of like the idea guy and he's got this kind of frenetic energy. Yes. Um, and he's really funny in those scenes. No, like, he's great. I mean, he's one of those characters that, you know, if we'd have gone five, six seasons, I mean, I would have loved to have done more with because, I mean, I think the actor is so fantastic and, and Peter's great. And um, it was just, it's a genuinely fun character to, to write once you found him, which was, I mean, that was really... In all of the iterations of this episode, there were versions of the script very early on that that were like little independent movies about, you know, uh, the, their relationship with bigger and sort of longer scenes in which he was played in some versions uh, more of an asshole and in some versions less of an asshole. And I think where we ultimately got was right that we we found the balance correctly. But, um, you know, I think Peter brings so much to the table in terms of his energy that uh by the time he put the performance to the words, you were like, oh, yeah, there he is. Like, that's the guy. I want to spend time with this character. So, Yeah, you get to the end of these scenes and you can both understand why they fell in love in the first place. Yeah. But also what why it went wrong. Right. And that that is, I can imagine, really hard to pull off. Um, but one of the things is interesting because the last time you were on the pod, you talked to us about your season three episode, Nurture. Right. And that was, we called it the team splinter breakup episode. That Mm -hmm. was everyone's lies coming to the surface and sort of the, um, sort of havoc that that then wrought like in all of their personal relationships. This episode feels like it is both between Elliot and Katerina, but also with Team Splinter at the end of the episode about reconciliation. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, um, even in sort of simple gestures with 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 um, Elliot putting his hand on Jones's hand, um, there's sort of beautiful farewell. I loved you, you know, in my way, and I suppose I did in mine. Um And, you know, the final scene that we'll get to at the end where everyone sort of, you know, Jones is like enough fighting, like we need to act as one and everyone sort of letting past grievances go and being honest. There's a lot of grace um, and forgiveness in this episode. And I don't know, is that something that you sort of intentionally were exploring? I mean, this feels like if you wrote the episode where everybody was falling apart, this really (laughs) feels where people are meaningfully coming back together. Yeah, I mean, I think you're... I I don't know how much of that was sort of intentional, but uh, in in terms of the symmetry of it, but um, certainly uh, the nature of the episode being what it it was did feel complementary to to nurture and and, and in a way that I think uh, ultimately, you know, a couple episodes later daughters feels to enemy in season three, you know? Um, So I, I I did, I feel like I had the privilege of getting to write certain bookends um, in, 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 in the show that uh, in a, in a way that as you're sort of typing on the pages, you're like, Oh yeah, thematically this does connect with, you know, this other piece that I wrote earlier. Um, But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's it's an an episode that's entirely about getting people to 
places of forgiveness and dropping, you know, the last remnants of mistrust and um, hesitance that our characters have at this point in the season. And, and as we know, we're about to go into the end game. We have to go in united. Um, and so I think, you know, it was very important to move those characters, not just forward, but move them together by the closing credits, um, you know, so that when Joan says at the end, you know, we, you know, let us act, you know, or the, the, the bit about, you know, I had always shunned the idea of family, let's act as one. There's kind of a double meaning, which is let's act as a family, let's act as one, one meaning family. And then there's also let's act as one, one meaning one thing, one unit. Um, so I, I think, you know, this is, and it's, it's more a testament to, you know, Joe and Steven and the performances than I, than necessarily to the script that, you know, all of those grace notes and, and that it works as well as it does is because that the words were brought to life by a series of artists who just like can communicate with whether it's musical notes or glances or simple shots, all of these very small gestures um, that I think play so well in the episode. Yeah, I mean, but one of, you know, this was initially as, you know, if you're the audience, it is, it's so bittersweet. Um, Sort of that, finding that forgiveness and yet that's the last time in this timeline, um, Elliot and Katerina will ever speak to one another. Right. Um, Or if we can move sort of to the Hannah and Elliot piece of the episode. But now we know, you know, it's it's funny because you were saying sort of like, there were these things about them that it was never going to work. But we now know, having watched the whole thing, that in the reset, this family is going to be restored. Right. You know, so we're going to watch them, you know, Elliot and, and Hannah laughing, playing a game while, while Jones watches them. And it, you know, it it adds sort of to the poignancy because mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, you sort, and it sort of makes you think about if people make a different, you have the same people, but if people make a different series of choices. Yes how different their lives can be. Yeah. Um, so sort of the Hannah and Elliot, when you were, when you were talking about sort of the, um, how would Hannah feel about her father? I would think one of the hardest things to hear would be what she says to him. I, I never had a reason to think about you. Right. Yeah. And that to me was that, that conversation as they sort of head through the tents to, to, Paladman's tent was one of the trickiest interactions I think in the episode because we had so so little time to give them a scene together that would be meaningful in terms of their relationship but the scene couldn't be bullshit you know so we couldn't just make up as they travel that 30 feet together that Hannah now cares or she loves him or she has an investment in this character that she's never known before um and you know it was more important that he found her really. Um, and so for her to, for her to kind of say, you know, no, I never, I never thought of you. I was raised by, you know, this series of extraordinary women. Um, and then for him saying, well, I hope I can just, you know, I'm going to go do something and I hope I can, that impresses you because it's for you. Um, and then for him to get, for him to get that closure, by the end of the episode that he's looking at the greatest thing he ever made as he ignores his masterpiece um, felt more important than, than moving Hannah closer to him. Um, so that scene was great. Cause we could just have Hannah say what she felt, which was hey, no offense. 
I never really thought of you until all of this. Um, because I was taken care of, you know, by Jennifer and then by Jones and, um, and owning that little slice of, of independence was important for her rather than sort of manually, um, uh, what do you say? Man, rather manufacturing, um, some relationship between them that, you know, what I think would have felt disingenuous. Yeah, no. And the thing that is sort of when he says, um, let's see if I can make a lasting impression. Um, the closing scene with Hannah on the episode is putting up that photograph on the board. Yeah. Clearly now thinking of her father. Right. Um, and so it's, it's interesting because in some ways the legacy, just getting back to the title episode that Elliot Jones leaves behind because of his actions, um, at the end, sort of what it culminates with is Hannah now thinks of her father. Like she has, you know, not, not a relationship per se, but, uh, she watched her father do, you know, in the performance, you can see, you know, team splinter may be used to blowing shit up, but like Elliot Jones seems a little scared going in, right? right. Like it's a brave thing that he does um, going in there to kind of stall for them with the pallid man, the way, the way he's talking, you almost kind of wonder if he knows that this may not turn out well for him. Right. Um, and so there's that side of it, that his daughter came out of this experience having respect for him, thinking about him when she never did before. Yeah, of on course. The other, and on the other hand, he gives them, like just tying it back to sort of the work, yeah. he gives them the plans for Titan, yeah. which is what they're going to use in the finale, right? Yes. To figure out how to take him down. Um, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it, it's what kind of the thing we tried to do all the time on Monkeys was how do you tie emotion to plot? Um, so... Yes, great. We've met Elliot Jones. We've had this great emotional experience with him. But how does that also move the story forward in a meaningful way? Um, and so, you know, to have him give them the answer, essentially, to his lasting contribution to their mission, not just their lives, um, but to their mission, uh, you know, I think, you know, just gives him his rightful sort of place of importance in the mythology of the show. Um, but... Yeah, we never, we didn't, we didn't ever want. That was all. It's always the challenge with monkeys was to to make sure that this thing we're telling over here that hopefully will reveal a secret or move the story forward is also an emotional character story. And so I think this was just sort of one of those examples of of uh, um, you know kind of how we do what we do on the show, which was yeah, he holds her hand and dies and gets to see the the best thing he's ever created before before that but then he also leaves behind something that without which the story would not could not have progressed right there is you know um one of sort of the rewatch layers to it there's a lot of talk in this episode about um sort of the natural order of Mm -hmm. parents dying before children and now when you watch uh hannah holding her father you know as he dies in her arms, you can't help but think of one minute more, or at least I can't. Sure. Um, and it it's rough, man. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> There's like these buried little emotional grenades in these episodes when you go back <laughs> and rewatch it. The, um, the, it one, of, one of the things that I found rewatching the episode just to prepare for the podcast um, that certainly was unintentional uh, and was probably just me plagiarizing myself, but actually I think worked quite nicely. Um 
was that he gets to kind of sequelize the sentiment expressed by Cassie's mother um, in in uh, Nurture that, uh, you know, when she tells Cassie to fight, it's what mothers do. Um, you know, he he says to Pallid Man, and, you know, this is what fathers do. They fight um, so that it's 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 the sentiment on both sides of the equation that both both, you know, fathers and, and mothers kind of are you know, both vocalizing that we would do anything for our children. Yeah. And the idea that it is instinctual. Yeah. Like, this is the same day he found out that he was a father. Right. Um, yeah. Um, if we can, um, there's that one scene that's between um, Hannah and Jones mm-hmm. when Hannah is sort of, you know, I know you're sick. Um and you know it's 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 lovely that Elliot Jones, as long as he has gone without seeing Katerina, he noticed the shaking of her hand mm-hmm. you know, almost immediately. There's a line. Um, this is a really beautiful scene, and we even had people today when we said that we were talking to you about this episode say how much this line means to them. It is the privilege of a child to walk a parent the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of sort of 12 monkeys fans maybe in their 30s and 40s who have aging parents Mm -hmm. that line it's a it's it's an emotional one um there's sort of a a tragic irony to it in that now we know hannah won't right um, she'll die before her mother Mm -hmm. um but sir that's there's a real beauty to that scene. Um, and I don't know if it's sort of one of the ones you were talking about that sort of is informed. It seems like it's one that's real informed by real life. Yeah, um, of course. It's really relatable. Yeah, no, I, you know, a lot of the, I would say over the course of the four or five years that we were making the show together, a lot of the writers experienced events in their lives relating to their parents, whether it was, you know, sicknesses or deaths or, um, you know, these really sort of, life-changing um or certainly perspective offering moments um and you know my my both my mother and my father have um throughout their lives gone through periods of you know illness where there was sort of the question mark hanging over their heads and um and you know me being thousands of miles away from them certainly considering and uh, uh, grappling with that struggle of you know uh you know, how to how to be a good child over a distance and how to be there and balance that against you know work and, and my family and um and so these are these are struggles that you know a lot of us just were going through together honestly things we would talk about around the writers room table and so you know to then be able to express that in in this scene that it's that's not a burden that's a privilege that's a thing we get to do um in exchange for the 30 40 50 years of parentage uh, and hopefully love and support that we've received um, from from our parents that um, yeah no it was absolutely a scene informed by by real life experiences and um, and meant to be uh, juxtaposed by what you pointed out which is that Hannah doesn't get to do that um, but in the moment you know that's a completely honest thing to say Um so yeah, it's a it's a lovely scene, and I think Brooke and 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 Barbara really, uh, it, it just in that very little bit of real estate that you have to play that scene, really do an extraordinary job in making it work. So, um, if we can, even though it comes at the end of the 
episode, I wanted to sort of leave the Jennifer and Emma pieces um, yeah. for the end. It's, so I know I'm jumping around. No, here, no, it's fine. Moving to that final um, sort of, we always called the war room scene. Um, everyone is fighting. Yeah. And if you just step back for a moment and think about some, I am struck by Jones in this scene, how it is. If you think of Jones in season one, mm-hmm. and I think there was even a scene where she was, you know, drinking with Ramsey and Cole and they asked her about her marriage and she just like quickly cut them off. And she was a character that was much more emotionally closed off and the, that she cuts through the sort of bickering with she's going to come clean first. Mm-hmm. The truth that she's been withholding since this season premiere is that she's dying. Right. And then she looks at all of them, all of them, when she says, this is the way that it's supposed to be mothers before their children. Uh It is a really, I mean, who would have thought we would be here now back in season one? Right. You know, to have Jones be the one emotionally open (laughs) and in her own way, telling all of these people around the table, calling them her children. Right. Um, Yeah, no, it's, 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 it was... This episode, and I think certainly uh, moments of, uh, of the episodes that come after it, you know, her reading the poem at the end of Daglaka, um is another one. Is those moments that you're writing and then on set watching it, and you're just really mindful of how far this particular character has come. You know, I think um, for me, you know, you, I, it was I was always struck by by Jones and Sir, and then Deacon's transformation over the course of the show. Um, because, you know, you had their, their, where they end and where they begin are so, so far away from each other, um, that it, that it, it, it's, it's really, Jones is one of those characters that it was always a privilege to write because you were always moving her forward into a different version of herself. Um, and it, she never felt stagnant. She felt like she was changing from episode to episode um and and to sort of be able to just get to this moment in the scene where she's able to say look let's drop any pretense that i'm the scientist at the head of the table giving you the mission anymore and that we're going the rest of the way as a unit and as a family it was just really the cherry on top of that um even with you know six seven more episodes to go of character progression for her this moment in this episode felt like a culmination. Yeah, there's um, there is some uh, makes me want to uh, throw the remote in a good way. <laughs> um, <laughs> foreshadowing both a lot of it has to do with the editing mm-hmm. um, juxtaposed with the lines, but we would be remiss if we did not point them out for listeners. This episode is a oh my God, how do we not figure out Hannah is Cole's mother episode? Because you right. have you have at the beginning, Hannah is the one who figures out the riddle um, <laughs> is about time. Um, and I guess, so is it sort of the correct conclusion that the riddle is an Ouroboros in and of itself because Hannah wrote the riddle because Hannah read the riddle? Yes, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, and then... You've got sort of in this final scene, everyone is like, yeah, Cole, why don't you come clean? And Hannah's like, what are you talking about? And what Cole has to like come clean with is 
it's about his mother. Uh-huh. And then when Jones says mothers should die before their children, the editing, it cuts from Jones to Cole and to Hannah. <laughs> and then you've got Cole, when Cole says the riddle came from my mother, it immediately goes to Hannah's face. Right. And it makes me want to throw the remote, Chris, because <laughs> how did we not figure this out? <laughs> well, that I mean, that that's a testament to, to, to uh, I wish I could take credit for any of that. Um, uh, that's a testament to Terry and our and our editor Drew, um, who just in designing that scene, uh, you know, had all the information at their disposal for where the story was going, and so we just, you know, I think they uh, uh, and I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just say we, I'll include myself in it, uh, <laughs> just kind of knew, um, you know, knew how to draw the lines and knew the parallels, and uh, you know, but also again, and I think this to their credit, without tipping it. I don't think at any point in that scene do you ever draw any conclusions based on the editing, but like in rewatching the scene, the editing is very telling. Right. It's one of those things that, I mean, you know, the editing on this show from just how they put the episodes together to the red T visions, that it's always been something that you sort of, as if you were like, it is so impressive, but when you, the whole rewatch, it just adds another layer of like, Oh my God, there were so many clues. (laughs) But never, obviously, we didn't figure it out. Um, If we can talk about Jennifer in this episode. Um, You mentioned a little bit before sort of that tension between you want Jennifer to still be propelling things forward and have a a point um, on this team and be contributing even if she's currently lost sort of her superpower. Right. Um, But we, we get to sort of where they meet the seer. And are we... Um, and I'm sorry, because I feel I feel badly that like we've rewatched the show so many times, but we still I still sometimes have sort of plot mythology questions. Sure. Is it correct that this the alpha the alpha primary and the primaries back in medieval times that will meet in demons? Yes. They know at this point that Olivia is watching. Yes. And so was the what was supposed to happen? Was it that they sent Jen, they 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 gave the clue Blackleaf in Montana, eighteen fifty two, so that they would find the seer, so that the seer would be the inter- intermediary, and drink the tea, and then pass that climb the steps, ring the bell, clue on to, yes. to keep them on their journey. That's what was supposed to happen. Yes. Okay, and then obviously we see how truly desperate and insecure Jennifer is that she feels like she has nothing to contribute without her powers, and so she drinks the tea. Right. And that's a monumental screw up. <laughs> so uh, can, yes and no in yes that, that. Yeah. That's the question. Is how much do people, how much <laughs> of this do they already know is going to happen? Right. You know what I mean? Okay. So <laughs> I think some of that remains a question mark, but I think that what the seers fundamentally understand. And again, we could spend hours on this. Uh, and, and honestly, the question is that, Whatever kind of whatever's going to happen, whatever's already whatever will happen has already happened and whatever and has happened will happen. Like that in the Ouroboros of it, the mistakes are a part of the, right. the plan in a in a strange way. That the, the things that we fuck up and we think of as as errors actually arm us later down the road to do other things, you know? So there is a little bit of a mystery in terms of what of this was a genuine error was not a part of the plan. And then what of this was 
our efforts to get the plan back on track. Um, and so I think the you and I and and we we all can debate you know the nuances of did the seers know that Jennifer would drink the tea, or you know did they see a world in which the the, the seer just gives us the information and then we move on from there. Um, I think you can make an argument either way, but I think that either way, what the seers understood is that if if we, meaning Cole and and company, do their jobs correctly. Um, and 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 course correct where they've gone off course. Uh, it'll 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 still end up where they they'll they'll still end up where they need to be. Okay, because yeah. that's sort of the the we had this question actually um, for the last episode, and it, it it kind of runs through for this one as well. Olivia, how much does Olivia know? Like in terms of, does she know that Deacon is a double agent? No. Uh, not she here. She is not, not I, here. She may suspect because she knows Deacon's nature, um, but she does not know he's a double agent until Cole inadvertently confirms it for her and daughters. Got it. Yeah. And, but, but she does know, even though she didn't know about the weapon right. until, until Jennifer drinks the tea. Yes. But she has seen a vision in the last episode when she was... Um, sort of riding through the time stream um, through Titan of Cassie on the balcony at Titan. Um, right. But, but is it sort of, even for Olivia, even though she is witnessing time in a way that is different than the primaries, it, is it is it right to conclude that it's still even for her a a series of images, like puzzle pieces that... Yes, yeah. She, I, is that fair? Like, even though she's um, sort of uh, witnessing it in a different way than primary, she doesn't quite have all of the puzzle pieces together either? Yeah, she's getting fragments. She's okay. not... She's not. When she gets those, when she has those, um, those images flashing before her eyes, that's not, like, total and complete knowledge. It's, it's, okay. jig, it's jigsaw pieces to a puzzle that she really can't even yet put together. Um, so this is also something new to her. Yes. I mean, she's she's essentially mimicking being primary, and they couldn't, you know, like Jennifer the, for the longest time, or a lot of them you've seen can't make heads or tails of what they're seeing. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's not like she's armed with full knowledge uh, at this point. Got it. Okay, that's super helpful, and I feel I feel a little less silly for. <laughs> Like, how have we been talking about this show? Look, I don't know. Who writes this shit? You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) Um, All right. So that brings us to Emma. Yes. And (laughs) Emma... It's funny because the way that it worked out um, between this episode and Daughters, you end up sort of in terms of figuratively putting pen to paper, um, writing the most like writing Emma's voice and story um, the most. So talk to us about Emma. Um, I think she's probably my number one most tragic character in the show. She like really breaks my heart and it's a horrible um, just man, another cycle of Olivia doing to her daughter what I guess we can now understand she did to herself. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, that's it, it. It it was it was about the cycle of abuse. You know what I mean? It was about that Olivia was a thing in a box who essentially created a person that she just put in a box. You know, um, and 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 which is a very Olivia thing to do. You know what I mean? Which is an incredibly, I'm going to create a human being that I don't have to regard emotionally at all. 
um, just to fulfill a, a, a purpose or an objective. Um, but then we wanted to put a face to that and, you know, make her a character who kind of realizes in a way that Olivia never could, that she has to break free of, of, um, break free of this, of, of this cycle and of this plan and then, and regain some of her independence and her agency. And, um, and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of talk about how to end that story. Um, and, and, you know, is it, is it too tragic to end it the way that we did it? But it was also necessary in propelling Hannah's story, which in itself is tragic, but I think ultimately much more, um, lovely, you know, uh, tragic in a, in a, in a meaningful and ultimately I think sort of happy way, um, that, uh, you know, and I, and I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think Emma, you know, and, and, and Abigail Hardingham, uh, who plays her just has these super large, beautiful, expressive eyes, um, that the character doesn't really have to say a lot for you to get in there and figure out what she's feeling and thinking. And, um, and and so I think by the end of that, you know, in two episodes, she manages to create uh, and then end a character, I think, rather beautifully. I think her performance is excellent. Um, but it was certainly not an easy task, uh, just, you know, in a limited number of scenes, making something that um, making Emma a character that you could care about and then understand. Is it fair to say that, I mean, with her ultimate goal, that Olivia has some kind of like twisted thought process that this life kind of doesn't matter anyway? You know, like what she does to Emma and what like, yes, there's all these horrible things, but then she's like, we'll be together forever. And so it's more like the ends justify the means. Um, I don't know. I think I think it's it's to me, it was just that Olivia is incapable of that level of love in general. Um, and, and uses people so opportunistically without any regard for their feelings or even the irony of that she's doing to this woman, what was done to herself. And if anything, uses the knowledge of what was done to herself to then do it to somebody else. Like, oh, I know, I know this was done to me, so I know how to do it elsewhere. Um, And that whole thing was fascinating too, because, you know, even I thought it was, it's not out of place. Like it makes sense in the context, but it's a very jarring line when she's like, well, one day we'll be together in the forest of red. And I'm like, but you don't care. <laughs> like, what right. I mean, it doesn't matter to you. Well, I, I, what I love about that though, is that it, from Olivia's perspective, that's, that's the goal, right? That's yeah. the religious um, purpose. You see Emma, I want nothing more mother. And that's coming from a place of wanting, at least how I interpreted it, wanting love. You right. know, like, because the, the line that, I mean, when you're saying you have such, you had such little time sort of to get across uh, sort of Emma's story, but a line that really struck me rewatching this with daughters in mind mm-hmm. and sort of those parallel, but, juxt like but contrasting journeys um with hannah and emma and daughters is when she says to elliot jones i never had a family right um because that really uh, the difference between hannah and emma is like the presence of love in their life yes Um, yeah you know um which you're going to make a huge point of um in daughters yeah what we wanted to start that a little bit here and just to show you that yeah i mean she's still on plan she's still she's still being the mole that her mother wants her to be but 
the tragic mistake that Olivia ultimately makes is um, not understanding the degree to which experiencing that level of acceptance and support and eventually kind of, I don't want to say love, but that, that she finds out there in the world and then eventually from our heroes is the thing that where Olivia feels nothing about that, Emma, that's all she's ever wanted. Um, and Olivia being incapable of giving it, Emma finds it elsewhere um, and softens to the point where then she comes to our aid and is ultimately able to be helpful for us. Yeah, no, now that you say that, I mean, there was something that um, it ties back to Olivia and everything we learned about her in the last episode. And after we recorded um, the podcast for 45 RPM, there was this really interesting discussion about um, villain origin stories. Right. Um, and it was a bunch of different writers talking on Twitter and, and, and contrasting villain origin stories like Breaking Bad um, versus vil, villain origin stories that maybe we are, are more used to seeing maybe in things like the Joker, um, where it's a series of bad things that happen to someone right. that then sort of creates the monster, mm-hmm. as opposed to Breaking Bad, you're you're rooting for them to not make that choice, but then they break bad and right. make that choice. Um, and after we recorded it, I was sort of thinking about it, when you compare Emma to Olivia. Um, Olivia had a chance. She had that friend that she was with in 1971, who is either a, a close girlfriend or a lover, mm-hmm. or it was an intimate relationship that you could tell that person was really looking out for her. Um, and when push came to shove, she broke her neck. Um, that was a choice, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and when she is asked to have a child and give it up and her mother is giving her a way out, that's a, she makes a, a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as we can sort of talk about that sort of nature nurture and how much could someone like Olivia, who has grown up in a box and been told that you have this purpose, be equipped emotionally to kind of break away from that. At the end of the day, those are two instances where we watch her make a choice that she didn't have to make. Right. And you contrast that with Emma being, you know, even though she's the mole, it's clear that there's a part of her that sort of enjoys being with Elliot Jones and Katarina Jones. You know, and she makes a very different choice. She chooses to run away from it, which is the opposite of what Olivia did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that that's, that ultimately becomes Olivia's failing and her undoing in the sense that she is incapable of understanding the emotional connections and complications um, that other people feel. And her inability to factor that into the plan or, or to anticipate that Emma might feel that because she would never feel it, um, you know, ultimately is, 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 is in large part um, the beginning of the end for her. In a strange way, she's kind of parallel at this point because, you know, Olivia was kind of adrift in an ocean of confusion for a while. She didn't really understand, like, where she was going or what she was doing. And now that she has this end game in mind, she's very much like season one Jones of, like, the mission, the mission, the mission. This is all that matters. But she just has no development in that area for it to be like, okay, wait, this is not all that matters. Like, there are nuances to this. And she just she never understands that. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever a moment in the show where Olivia might have gone a different way or potentially been changed, it might have been somewhere in season three. But by the time you get to season four, Olivia, she is just she's she's broken bad already. She's 
I think in, in some ways irredeemable. So um, it becomes about what is the damage that that does to other characters. Emma certainly being the one who's damaged the most. Yeah. And then you, you have that in contrast, um, you know, you have these two mothers at the end of this episode, you have Jones talking to both her real daughter, her grandson. She doesn't know it's her grandson and her found family. Right. Um, and, and talking to them as a mother. And you contrast that with Olivia talking, who is Emma's mother, but it's so, it's just not about that relationship at all. Right. You know, like it's about purpose. And that, you know, she's talking to her daughter just as she was talked to by her mother and yep. father. So, man, <laughs> it's a tragic, <laughs> oh, it's a tragic cycle. Um, one of the really great things that you, sort of folded into this is, you know, one of the, one of the clues, um, origins stories of sort of the Cole family mantra of of never giving up. Um, You fold into this episode in a different way. You, you let us know that that came from Elliot Jones, but sort of the irony of Elliot's repeated failure in this episode is that's what gives Emma the idea for the Hartle Hawking state. right? Right. First of all, it's so great because then we understand why the pallid man needs all of this power, right? Back to building Titan back in 1852. Um, but also, how much did you guys get into sort I mean, I can't imagine what sort of the board in your writer's room looked like, but now you guys are folding like real freaking physics into it. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, let's put we'll put real in quotes there. I mean, we're 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 editing liberally uh, the the definitions of these things, but uh, you know, we we wanted to at least have sort of some grounding for these things. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's it's the the way that all of these things you know create and then affect and then create each other. The Ouroboros of all of it was was a lot of fun to play into. And the Jones family motto was something that we actually, I think, if I remember correctly, came came across a little a, a bit later in the game. That that was somewhere in, I forget where exactly we were, but we were a little bit farther down the road into three and four when we kind of made the decision to thread that through the season um, as being something that that we wanted to 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 sort of connect these two ideologies together, and um, and so that was a that was really fun once we had that. And we were able to go in and sort of drop the Easter eggs in along the way. And that was really the benefit of three and four, especially, is being able to write these seasons together as a piece um, without the sort of normal year long or you know six month break you would take between seasons of, of television normally. Um, that you could have an idea sort of somewhere in season four ish and then go, wait, we, sh- we should go back and drop these in. So um, that was a real joy to be able to do. Um. It's featured in this episode, but I'm obviously more prominently in the last episode. Um, The Ouroboros itself is, uh, you know, obviously a metaphor for a lot that's going on in this show, but also just sort of the way you opened up this season with sort of the Ouroboros through history and Mm -hmm. then culminating with the actual, like... MacGuffin that Cole has, right? Right. But then you turn all the keys. Where did you guys come up with all of that? <laughs> was it just somebody like researching all of it and then sort of the idea started spinning that it could be an actual object? Yeah, I think it was honestly just um, 
you know, it it was it was just sort of the the uh, ping ponging back and forth in the room of we we kind of came upon the framework of the Ouroboros as being metaphorically cool, and then we were talking about okay, well, we need a MacGuffin, so what's the MacGuffin going to look like? And um, and then uh, you know, someone I forget who probably said, you know, okay, what if it was an Ouroboros? And and then we were like, okay, well, let's start designing cool Ouroboros things. And I mean, it, it was it, it, probably just, if I remember correctly, just the result of a lot of what ifing each other um, and trying to find a great externalization of what the season was about internally. Um, and I think we probably just said, let's just, you know, hit the nail on the head when, and avoid subtlety here. Uh, and really just like, let's let the MacGuffin be the thing the MacGuffin is about. So, um, yeah, no. And then, and then I think the puzzle to opening it, I think it was sort of me, Terry and Sean Tretta sitting around one day being like, okay, how do you open the damn thing? And then we were like, well, what if the riddle, one of us said, you know, like, what if the riddle itself, the images that, that the riddle evokes ends up being the key to opening it. So it, it was just like a lot of things on the show, a great collaborative back and forth between the writers to come up with something that's ultimately sitting on somebody's desk right now. And I wish it was on mine, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like in the words of agent Gale, it's just so darn cool. I know. <laughs> like all of the little beads turning. Oh, uh, I know. I miss cool. Gale. I want, I want, I want my Gale spinoff series. Oh, that's what I was saying. I would love an agent Gale spinoff. Um, uh, when we were on, when we were on set, me and uh, I think Kat Candler directed an episode with uh, with Gail in it, and uh, we were all just sitting around. And I was like, I was like, can't we just go pitch this? Like, can't we do like a noir X Files? Yes. Where like <laughs> where Agent Gail is just like in the forties, fifties, sixties, and he's just solving supernatural crimes while he's waiting for the twelve monkeys to come back. <laughs> I was like, I would watch that show. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so the one, um, if if you have time one character we can talk about who has a sort of uh at least on initial watch kick in the stomach return is deacon right um talk to us sort of about this point in in deacon's arc at least sort of there's one thing on the surface and there's another thing going on underneath and the only one who still believes in him is jennifer yeah i mean it was it, it's just it's the cards you turn over and that's in that sort of natural double agent story um and this was the moment when we needed to uh th- this was the moment where we needed to at least make some effort at convincing the audience that he'd gone bad um you know so you know let him appear have him shoot at us um you know let's 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 do all of that. And then he kills Elliot, which I think for the audience functionally sits there and makes them go, oh, maybe he is bad. But then there's a perfectly reasonable team splinter explanation for why he would have done that. And you now know, we can't finish Titan. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it's 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 very tricky um, to, to sort of to balance those scales. But I think uh, th- th- this was that episode where, where he was able to. Um, kind of step forward into the limelight, introduce himself as a villain, but actually then do a thing in in doing that that was advantageous to us. Right, because the thing that I didn't pick up on sort of initially is that the pallid man is quite clear in telling him we need the architect to finish it. So when you rewatch it, you're like, oh, that's why he did it. You know, that's why he kills Elliot Jones. Um and Deacon's always going to be the character who's willing to make that hard choice, um, right? He's always been that guy. 
Right. Exactly. Um, so. Yeah. Um, and it's also just, you know, there's a lot of, again, it's all just sort of in the acting, but you see how happy Cassie is to see him, um, which kind of makes it even worse when he starts shooting at them. <laughs> <laughs> You're so. like, oh shit, it's the ultimate betrayal. <laughs> yeah. It's also um, the ultimate hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hey how you doing it. bam 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 yeah uh I, you know there's just also a joy that comes from everyone just looking really freaking badass in their western costumes <laughs> so yeah and i will um, i will say just as a little easter egg for for fans this was this was one of those uh this was one of those episodes where in the original original conception of the episode and it was written uh and I, this is like just one of those great what ifs of 12 Monkeys. There were two characters. Deacon had two gunmen that traveled with him. And this was uh, something that Terry and I think Sean and I had muddled around with to see if we could make work. And they were uh, two gunmen named Monkey C and Monkey Do. Uh, which is how we referred to them in the script. And one of whom had an yes, eye. I remember this. It's so great. Please yeah. keep going. Have you talked about this? Uh, that no, one- not in detail. Terry just mentioned it in passing once. One of them had an eyepiece that allowed him to see. Uh, they existed slightly out of sync with each other or something, if I'm remembering this correctly. And one of them had an eyepiece that allowed them to see into the future like five seconds or something. And then the other one would react before the thing happened. And so there were whole sequences where that were played in split screen between the <laughs> thing that the thing like Cole goes and does a thing, but monkey C broadcasts that five seconds into the past so that monkey do then has to, um, uh, then has then reacts to it. So you see like the thing that Cole did successfully and then you see it thwarted on the other half of the screen. Like it was this insane, crazy time travel action duo that we created that we would never have been able to afford to produce. Um, but they were they were sort of the ideas on the cutting room floor of 12 Monkeys. Those were those were two of the two of the funner ones. Oh, that would have been so cool. We can save that for the Agent Gale spinoff, right? That can be one of the... There you go. Yeah, totally. The week. <laughs> so, oh, that would have been cool. I can't imagine sort of the sarcastic uh, quips that Deacon would have had about those two. Um, it was it was very fun. It was like, I mean, the, I, 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 I was trying to see if I could find the sequence that was written and I couldn't, but we ha- we're going to have to off to see if I can unearth it somewhere and send it to you guys. But oh, yeah. Well, if we were if we're able to share it, we would love to do that. Um, if it still cool. if it still exists, I couldn't find it. But it was like I, I just remember we sent it over to our, our production guys and they were like, are you insane? No, we're not doing this. We can't. It's already <laughs> expensive enough with the Wild West stuff. <laughs> the funny thing is, and I, th- I think that when Terry mentioned it before, I mean, he said that that was what you guys called it, but obviously, like, they didn't even have names right. at the time. But what's funny is it, when you're specifically talking about putting them in the context with Deacon, I feel like he would have made a snide comment and called them that. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah, I think that that's actually in the in the in the pages, if I remember, was that he refers to them as monkey see and monkey do. Okay, Chris. So again, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. You always have like such insightful, um, you know, kind of back end commentary and we love to hear it. No, thank um, you for having me. I always love doing these. So what are you watching right now that we should be watching right now? 
I, I, so I think, I mean, obviously Watchmen, I think was such a, a huge and extraordinary achievement for sort of sci-fi fans who love like really sophisticated intellectual science fiction. I thought that show was just so beautifully sort of constructed and conceived and executed. And, um, let's see, I was also very impressed, although this is a little dated by now, the third season of Legion, I thought was really terrific and, and makes, makes the entire show worth watching. Um, it's just this experimental emotional art house piece. That's just unbelievably well put together. Um, and I think that the third season is just kind of masterfully done. Uh, and I'm just, I, honestly, it's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of um, great and entertaining science fiction fantasy on TV right now. Um, you know, people have had mixed and different reactions to The Witcher, but I mean, I think there's a lot of fun to be had there. I'm very excited that Altered Carbon season two starts soon yes. um, because I think that was a, that was a show that... You know, it look, it's got ups and downs, but I think was really ambitious science fiction. And I'm just excited, you know, as much for what's out there now as for what's coming down the pipeline. So uh, and then, you know, also Picard season two. So you got got that to look forward to. Um, Can I I say that like with both um, both The Witcher and The Mandalorian, I had different moments like for example with the mandalorian i kind of hit the midway point and i was like i don't really think there's a bigger overarching like i, I had a oh this is this is an episodic kind of show right moment. and not sure how i felt about that but then i came out of <laughs> i came out of the rise of skywalker and i was like you know what maybe sometimes that's okay yeah maybe maybe <laughs> if i don't have huge expectations then it can't hurt me and then i'm like just enjoying it you know from week to week and i had kind of i don't know like poo-pooed that a, a little and i kind of rediscovered my it's okay to just have an adventure once a week no you know? i mean i think I've, I've been a big doctor who fan for forever and i don't i have a lot of thoughts and feelings about uh, the last two seasons, but um, what I what I've always appreciated about that show is it maintains um, a great balance of serialized mythology with just look tune in this week and you're going to have a very unique adventure that exists apart from every other episode and it's going to have its own identity and its own you know plot and emotion and aesthetic and um, and we tried actually we tried to do that on 12 monkeys for as serialized a show as it is. And certainly you couldn't just sort of jump in at any given episode and, and run with it. We loved the idea of making every episode feel unique so that you could you could turn to somebody and go the one where this happened, the Western one, the medieval one, the Nazi one. Um, so that even within the context of, a, of something that's highly serialized, you were getting something that also felt at least a little bit episodic. Yeah, and The Witcher was, it was just fun, you know? Right. (laughs) Like, I I mean, there were definitely moments where I had to pause it and be like, I don't, I don't know what's going on, man. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and I had been told there were different timelines, and I was like, I thought that I had gotten pretty good at this different timeline thing, but apparently not, because I have no idea what's going on, and parts (laughs) that maybe kind of, like, laugh out loud, but then there are parts that I'm like, you know what? I kind of love having a talking dragon in my life. Fine, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes it's okay to just have fun. You know, it's right. okay it's it's okay to not have to binge something. It's okay to not have to tell a great sweeping huge, 
interlocking story and then to just say, you know, there's a monster and here's a, a guy or a girl who hunts monsters and here tell that story for an hour. Um, and, and I'm glad that, you know, uh, shows like, you know, Mandalorian or, or uh, you know, Witcher can have those episodes and create those structures that just to let people, you know, check out for a little bit without having to carry around the baggage of, oh, how does this connect to this or where is this going and all that. Right. Like, I think um, we were talking earlier this week in the context of another show, but I think I was like, you know, sometimes you're in the mood for like, oh, like, you know, an amazing steak. And sometimes you just want like a really good hamburger. <laughs> and both of those are good, but just like in different ways. Absolutely. Sometimes you just want to watch Legends of Tomorrow. It's a hot <laughs> mess. Like, <laughs> the hottest of messes, but it's just like this is fun and at the end of the day they do care about their characters so whatever they put them through you're just like yeah whatever that's fine right, <laughs> right. you know we just finished season one of succession um last night and obviously it's everything that everyone said um in terms of writing and acting and all of that i also felt like shit going to bed <laughs> <laughs> so well i'm four epi- i'm four episodes in so i look forward to feeling like shit when i go to bed <laughs> least you're like whatever i'm fucking up in my life i'm not as terrible <laughs> as those people exactly <laughs> so it's interesting that you guys brought up though you know episodic versus serialized and specifically cc that you talked about um rise of skywalker because i know that yeah we all have star wars trilogy feelings but i went to see that with my parents who just were like hey movies whatever and they hadn't seen seven or eight and when i had to just kind of explain to them like these are who the characters are um and then we got to watch it. Right. And I I tried to watch it through their eyes. It was so much more enjoyable. <laughs> I was like, oh, look, this is just a movie that happened. Because it just ties back, you know, so much to the original and stuff. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is great. <laughs> well, um, you're just fun to talk to. So really, it's your fault. No, um, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll happily take that blame. And I, and I hope we get to talk again when, when Daughters comes around as well. Because I would love to uh, to come on and chat with you about that as well. Yeah. We would love that. And if you want to talk to sort of your fellow writers, I mean, we are um, sadly in sort of the home stretch of the series. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I know you guys did. You did that great. And if folks haven't listened to sort of sci-fi's Talking Monkeys, there were some great discussions after sort of everything just aired. But I imagine you all sort of have different perspectives on things now. So whoever wants to come back, we always love to talk to <laughs> I, I'll happily, I'll happily talk you up to all the other guys. And then uh, anything you need from me, I'm always happy to do it and always happy to join you guys. It's always a blast. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Again, thank you so much to Christopher Monfett. We appreciate him coming and just having so much insight on the show and being so passionate about it. Our next episode will cover 405 after Selena Wilkin, formerly of Hypable. We'll be back to discuss the 1960s where we get to see Shaw and Agent Gale again. Until then, we'll see you soon.